And remember, when it, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, God didn't give us a, a list of do's and don'ts that makes it hard for us to know him and to serve him. God gave us this, this, this list to know him better and how it enhances our relationship, how we should serve him, love him, and love others. So God gave us the commandments to know him. And some would argue this, when it, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, they say, well, that's part of the Old Testament. Uh, therefore, if they're part of the Old Testament, they're irrelevant because of uh, what Christ has done. Uh, but Jesus never, uh, uh, he never uh, abolishes the commandments. In fact, he, he commends them. He reaffirms them. And we see that here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think, and this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I've come to uh, destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So if you're born again, the Ten Commandments ought to be a way of life. Uh, the Spirit of God empowers us to live the commandments. And we see that here in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law, remember the Ten Commandments, part of the law, uh, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives us life so that we can live out the righteousness of each commandment, not under law, we're not forcefully. It should be a natural outflow of a Spirit-filled life. So that's what this series is all about. It's about identifying the spiritual principles revealed in each commandment and how each commandment enhances our relationship with God and with others. And last week, we looked at the first commandment and uh, that we should have no other gods beside the one true God. Uh, in that first commandment, we see the spiritual uh, principle of priority, that we put God first. He, he, he becomes the first and foremost our focus, and that's what's communicated through that first commandment. And Jesus said this in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So Jesus instructs us to seek God first, and his kingdom, and everything else can. I won't say will, because we have a free will, but everything can then fall in place. Uh, I will say, if we don't put God first, it will never fall into its proper place. But if we put God first in his kingdom, things can fall into place in their proper perspective, though. So that's what we see here in that first commandment, the principle of the first, or the principle of priority. And it's, it's really counterintuitive for our flesh to put, put God first, because we are, by our flesh, we want to put ourselves first. And so when we can do that with the help of the Spirit, it's amazing what God can do through us. So this morning, we're going to look at the, uh, the second commandment and the spiritual principle that's revealed through the second commandment. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Go ahead and read there with you, and they'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, it says this, uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven uh, above, or that in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." So seven of the Ten Commandments start out with that exact phrase, you shall not. 
And God isn't trying to be a prude, and he's not trying to keep us from having fun when it comes to the Ten Commandments. It's like this. <clears throat> if you tell your children you're not going to play in the street, don't play in the street. You don't tell them not to play in the street because you're trying to keep them from having fun. You tell them not to play in the street because a car can run over them. It's a dangerous place to be. It's not the place, it's not, and you're not trying to keep them from fun. You're just trying to keep them safe because you love them. And God gives us each of these commandments, not because he's being some kind of prude, but because he loves us. And it's not for our detriment. The commandments are for our benefit. So God gives each of the commandments motivated by love. And so when God gave Israel the commandments, Israel had just came out of Egypt. They were in bondage. They were enslaved uh, there in Egypt. And Egypt was a nation that worshiped many gods. But the land God was giving them was Canaan. And Canaan was also a nation that had many gods, but they also had many idols. It was a, a, a nation that was filled with idol and idolatry. And when we look at that, we may think of idolatry in, in a traditional sense, but, and we compare that to our nation, and we say, well, we don't have that same type of thing, but yet we do. We are a nation full of idols. And the idols in our nation may not look like the idols created during biblical times, but make no mistake, we are a nation filled with many idols. And the definition of an idol, according to Webster's, is this, excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or thing. Excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or thing. So an idol is anything that replaces the one true God and substitutes what the one true God can do or what he can provide. Give you an example. Money can be an, become an idol. And so we may not bow down and worship our money. We may not stack it up, but some people might. You know, some people might, might like the way it looks or whatever. But we're not literally bowing down to our money. Uh, but we sometimes look to our money as our source. And money cannot be our source. God has to be our source. So it's not that money is bad. It's just what we, how we treat it. And anything can, can become an idol. And that's a great example. And so money is never our source. God is our source. So let's look at a portion of Scripture that's associated uh, with the second commandment. And I think it's a, a part of Scripture that's really been misinterpreted and, and it's not understood correctly because often we take this out of context. Here's what I mean. Let's look back at verses 4 and 5 in Exodus chapter 20. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol. Any likeness of anything that is in, in, the, hev in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that which is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, some people read this verse, and they'll apply the term a generational curse, and, and will do so incorrectly and do so towards the wrong people. God clearly communicates this outcome to those who do what? practice idolatry, because that's what it is given. That's the context. You can't just take things out of context. It's associated with those who commit idolatry and those who hate him. That's the context. You know, in some circles, you'll people have people that just haphazardly kind of use that term as a, as a way to kind of brand excessive sin or compulsive sin or habitual sin, whatever you want to say. Uh, a, a person who is struggling with the same sin as their father or their mother or their grandparents, and they'll sometimes refer to that too as a generational curse. 
And the term generational curse itself does not appear in the Bible. Okay, it doesn't actually appear. It's a, it's a term we've created that something that we want to use to explain something, we believe that'd be a biblical concept, but the term itself is not actually in the Bible. Now, here's the problem we often run into when it comes to uh, generational curses. It's our modern explanation of a generational curse often runs counter to what the Bible actually says. So first of all, God uses the terminology in Exodus specifically, again, to those who are involved in what? Idolatry. That's the context. Secondly, God uses a word that's a key word. We sometimes just read right over it, visiting, visiting. God doesn't say, I'm going to make, cause, force certain iniquities to inhabit preceding generations, to visit. And third, God says uh, this applies to those who practice idolatry and hate him. So that's the context we have to remember when we're talking about this. And in most cases, we apply the term generational curse to the wrong people in the wrong circumstances. I've heard people say this. Uh, my, my granddaddy was an alcoholic, my daddy was an alcoholic, and because they were alcoholics, I became an alcoholic. And that's their view or concept of a generational curse. But God uses the term visiting, visit, for a reason. That's because we have a free will. And what some people are saying is this, in terms of a gener generational curse, I'm being held captive for the sins of my relatives. Now, here's the problem with that. That runs contrary to the concept of God being revealed through Scripture as being just and righteous. He is a just God. Justice is a huge theme that runs throughout the Word of God. And if you're being held responsible for the sins of other people, some people you've never met, then that is an unjust situation. Listen, in any court of law, that would not stand up because it's unjust. All right? God is a just God. And with that said, I've seen people, the sins of parents visit their children, but not in the terms as we sometimes describe in a generational curse. Give you an example. If you practice iniquity in front of your children or grandchildren, those children may, not will, may think, because they have a free will, may think your behavior is acceptable. And they may practice that same behavior as acceptable. But that does not mean they will do so, or they're compelled by a curse. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people share about growing up in a home where certain iniquities took place, and that person themselves never commit any of those iniquities because those sins were visited upon the house and they were repulsed by those sins. Just the opposite often happens. So remember this verse applies specifically to those who hate God and practice idolatry. And we can't apply this verse outside of that context because you can't just willy-nilly do what you want with Scripture and make it fit somewhere. Read Scripture in its context. Read it and understand it cohesively with the rest of Scripture. God himself is the one that's setting this parameter. So if we start venturing outside of that, that's where we create schisms in Scripture that doesn't exist. So according to Scripture, we cannot apply the term, and I'm going to say this very clearly, you cannot apply the term generational curse to anyone who is born again with the Spirit of God who dwells in them. You cannot do that. Now, you can say it all you want, but it doesn't make it so. It cannot, to those who practice idolatry and hate God. And if you're born again, you love Jesus, you're serving him, this doesn't apply to you. And here's why. 
The scriptures actually share just the opposite. You're never going to find a scripture in the New Testament which says we're under some type of curse in Christ. In fact, you find just the opposite. In Christ, we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. You say, well, that's different. The curse of the law is the curse of all curses. The curse of the law is death. And we've been redeemed from the curse of the law through Christ. So what does God say to people who love him and don't practice idolatry? Showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now that doesn't mean, because if you reverse the thinking, that doesn't mean people are going to be saved because their relatives served God, loved him, and obeyed the commandments. Because that's what you have to do if you're going to assume the first part is going to cause you to be responsible for your relative sins, then you're not responsible and you're saved because your ancestors served God. You see the dilemma we create when we take Scripture out of its context? So remember, we understand the Scriptures cohesively and in their context, and it'll just keep you out of a lot of trouble. So if you believe in a generational curse where people are held captive and responsible for the sins of their ancestors, ancestors, then you have to believe the opposite is true. Because in that same Scripture, then certain people are going to be saved because they are just the relatives of people who love God. That doesn't exist because we all have a free will. We're all sinners. We all have to turn from our sins and turn to Jesus to be saved. So as a nation, we are in a nation that have many gods in a traditional sense. And here's what I mean. When you go through our nation, we don't see our, our land, even if you talk to folks in our community. We're not a nation of, in a traditional sense, of serving different gods. The majority of our nation identifies as Christian, and then the three big religions, although we would obviously differ in our opinions with each other, all basically believe in one God. Now, whether it's the, the God is the problem we face. So we're not a nation in the sense that we have many gods, but we are a nation that has many gods, and here's what I mean. The most popular God we serve in this nation is not the Lord. It's me, myself, and I. So while we are a, a country of gods, we are definitely a country or a nation that serves many idols. So in the second commandment, God says we should not create an idol for ourselves to bow down, to serve, and to worship. And an idol is something fashioned in the likeness of a god. The reason why ancient cultures believed this, they could carve an image, they could shape an image, fashion an image, and then that image could then be inhabited by the deity. All right, so they would create an image. They, they weren't necessarily worshiping the, the idol. They understood the idol was, was just things they've created. But they believed the idol could be empowered by the deity. And that's why they would pay homage or respect or prayers towards the, the idol. And really, idolatry is a complete perversion of God's plans and purposes. And here's what I mean. Think about this. We are created in the image and likeness of God. God empowers us or gives us life because he breathed into us the breath of life. We became a living soul. Under grace, where we're born again, we're born into the kingdom of God by the spirit of God. And God puts his spirit upon us within us. See what I'm saying? When you look at idolatry, it's complete perversion of God's plans and purposes. When Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, 
mean, it's ironic. God's giving him these commandments. He, and, at, and at the end, he goes, by the way, those people down the mountain, they're crazy. They're down there worshiping the cow right now. You've been gone for so long that they begin to worry, and they're gonna cre- they've created an idol for themselves, and they're worshiping it. And so when Moses goes down the mountain, he already knows what he's going to see. And so he comes down from the mountain. He sees the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. And when Moses saw this with his own eyes, he confronts Aaron because Aaron's his brother. And Aaron is kind of in charge while he's away. So if you remember, this is the classic because this is something we miss. Uh, Moses come down the mountain. Joshua is there. And so Joshua was with him that time. We're in close proximity. And he's like, it's a, it's a sound of war. And it's like, it's not a sound of war, buddy. <laughs> it's, it's bad. And so when he gets down there, he finds Aaron. Because Aaron's like, what, what happened? And I'm gone. I left the house for just a little bit, and now it's gone crazy. You ever done that with your children? You said, well, yeah. So it's kind of like that took place. So Moses comes down from the mountain. He sees that they've fashioned this, this golden calf, and they're worshiping it. And when he finds uh, Aaron, this is what? The confrontation takes place, and this is, how, this is how Aaron responds to Moses. And this is Exodus 32, verse 22. So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. <laughs> you know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to him, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Now, Aaron lies. He just lied, right? Complete liar. Said, just threw the gold in the fire, and it just came out. Got a gold cow. And the, cow did, the calf didn't just come out. They fashioned it. They created it. They molded it. And Israel understood the idol wasn't God. That's not their thinking. We're going to, because you think, why would they make a calf? And there's a lot of reasons why they didn't. I'm not going to get into it. But they believed the idol because they wanted, they just came out of a nation of, of gods and idols. They're living in a nation of gods and idols. And so the idea is this we don't, Moses were, was our idol, so to speak. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're looking at him. He is the representation. Even though God is revealing himself in powerful ways, they're still looking to the wrong person. So Moses is gone. And we want to create an idol, an idol that God could empower, an idol that we could go to, to pray, to to seek, to find favor. So this was their idea behind creating the golden calf. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he witnesses witnesses all this. And I don't know if you, you recognize this in scripture, but there are some despicable acts that are taking place with their idolatry. Uh, Exodus 32, 6, then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And this is in reverence to the golden calf. This is where Moses gets there. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, it says. And if you look at the words, it's revelry. They were partying hard. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, uh, commentaries on what this could mean. But I will tell you this, when you get to idolatry, any type of idolatry that's in place, you'll always find um, uh, a certain siphoning away from what is righteous, what is good, to what is perverted. It is always involved in idolatry. It always starts out with an appearance of godliness, and it always ends up into the flesh. 
So when it comes to idolatry, there's always a perversion of the sacred. Give me an example in the Old Testament, the worship of Moloch. Parents are offering their children through the fire. Now, there's lots of different uh, studies on this, but they believe sometimes they would pass the children through the fire quickly, and then there are times where it just came to where they were providing their children to the fire. Give you another example in the worship of Asherah and other fertility gods and goddesses. Shrine prostitutes were available. So if you're having trouble conceiving a child, you would go and have sexual relations with the shrine prostitute who then would give you a fertility blessing. There's other reasons for it as well. In all forms of idolatry, there's a siphoning away from what is sacred towards a perversion. And throughout the Bible, God strongly condemns any form of idolatry and prohibits any likeness of his own image. You know, throughout God, he strongly, throughout the scripture, he strongly condemns, and there's a reason. You know, Christians cannot, should not bow down to a statue or any likeness of God or any saint or any other person to intercede on their behalf because it's idolatry. And you say, well, you know, there's churches that practice this, and I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 2, 5, there, you know, first of all, no idols, no images, no carving, no graven image, none of that. But on top of that, there's no reason to go to an idol. Here's why, 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that man is Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 18, for through him we both have access, speaking of Christ, by, the one, by one spirit to the Father. Everyone who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, is born into the kingdom of God, has access to the Father through Christ. So Jesus is our mediator. No one, you don't need to go through me. You, please don't go through me. I'm the wrong person. You go through Jesus. He is your mediator. He is the one who intercedes between you. He is a go-through, so to speak. We can come boldly to the throne of grace through Christ. So we pray to a God who is unseen. And God wants it that way. And here's why God wants it that way, because he knows mankind. And mankind, what we do, we, is, we always pervert things. So he wants his, his image, his likeness, his presence to be holy. And what we do is this. If we got a picture, a glimpse, we'll, tr we'll begin to create an image, and we, we'll say, well, we're just going to hang it in reverence in our home or whatever place. We're going to hang it there as, as a reminder, as a symbol but eventually what we'll do is what we do with all mankind. We bow down to it. We'll look to it. We'll pray towards it. We'll put our focus on that. And God says that is not allowed. He is our focus. Our focus cannot be a thing. It must be God. An idol can be something or someone that becomes more important to us than God himself. An idol can be someone or something that we look to to seek that only God can provide. So idolatry is the, the belief that an idol can become a link between the divine and what the worshiper wants or desires. That's the essence of what idolatry is. So the idol then, which is in the middle of that, gets the attention, and it connects us to the God who has the source. So an idol puts a person into contact with what they want and what they desire. And idols we have fashioned today are created to give us access to what we want and desire. Let's say that again. The idols we fashion today in our world are created to give us access to what we want and desire. Give you, give you a couple examples. Image. 
Image itself is an idol today. We're a culture that is caught up in our image. Because we believe if we have the right image, it will bring us what we want, what we desire, what we need. If we look right on the outside, not so much on the inside, it'll get us what we want. It'll get us further. And, and oddly enough, we live in a world that values image. We, we often have, we, we admire image over substance. If you don't believe me, then this is true. And I love sports, but we have sports heroes that are despicable people. But we look beyond it because they're such a great athlete, great accomplishments. We'll separate it. Well, they're there could be just a despicable human being who desperately needs Jesus. And that's okay to say that. So we look to image, and, and our nation celebrates image. We have a world that doesn't always see past the veneer of the false image, but we serve a God, and there is a God who sees beyond all that, and he knows our motivation, he knows our attitudes, he knows what the truth is. And, but yet we're not concerned what God is concerned about we're concerned about what people are concerned about. And if people see a good image and accept that, it's an idol. Our image, our image itself is an idol, or it can become an idol. Money and material things, obviously another idol. So many people seek money or material things, what? To fill a void, to give them what only God can fulfill. Our printed money, our coinage will say this, in God we trust, but make most, no mistake, we as a nation trust in money. What's the old saying about the election? It's about the economy, stupid. Because money is our God. Money is our idol. We believe money can bring us contentment, but that idol is incapable. If that's true, the happiest people on earth should be the richest people on earth, and they are just as miserable as anyone else. You know, the suicide rate amongst the, the rich and famous is higher at a higher rate than those who are poor. Statistically, it's a fact. It's amazing what you can find. Just the center for like health and science, I forget what it's called, but I'm, I'm not making it up, but you go, there's plenty of studies that find there are higher rates of suicide amongst the rich and famous than there are the poor. Money is an idol. It's incapable of delivering on the promises and hopes it says it has. Career and status are idols. So many people bow down to the idol of status and career rather than giving that devotion and commitment that belongs to God only. We try to find completeness and wholeness in our, our vocation, when in reality, our completeness and wholeness can only be found in Jesus. See, God has a plan and a purpose for our lives, but we can only fulfill that plan in Christ. Entertainment is another idol. We look to entertainment to help us through a difficult day. We've all done that. We've all went through a season of time. I'm just turning on the TV I'm just going to veg out. And there's, I'm not condemning that. I do the same. But that can't be the habitual way that we handle stressful days. It becomes an idol because God is our source. God wants to bring that peace. God wants to bring that, that calm back into our, our hearts and our lives, not entertainment. And sometimes we do this. We're going to veg out and watch the news to relax, and you aren't relaxed. You are more amped up than anything. Sex and sexuality, obviously, huge idols in our nation. The Greek word through, used throughout the New Testament to describe sexual morality is the Greek word pornea. It's a word that describes all sorts of sexual immorality. I'll give you an example. Premarital sex, adultery, sex with animals, homosexuality, lesbian, and all forms of sexual sin are described in that word pornea. 
Now, obviously, pornea is the same Greek word where we get the word pornography, sexual images. So some people commit sexual morality to satisfy a desire of lust. Others commit sexual morality not motivated by lust at all. And for some of you, you're like, how could that happen? Because some people are motivated by sexual morality to get what they want and what they need. Some people will do certain things to get what they want, what they need. Attention, affection, love, but it's a false love. The reasons for sexual morality, immorality varies, but make no mistake, it is an idol. And the idol of sexual morality does this. It draws us away from an intimate relationship with God, and it promises intimacy that it cannot provide. Only God can provide. You know, we worship the idol of drugs and alcohol and substances, experiences to deal with our pain, to deal with our trauma, to deal with our suffering, and those sources are false. Only God can be our source. Only God can give us healing, wholeness, and peace. There is no substance, there is no person, there is no experience that can substitute for God, and that's exactly what an idol promises. And throughout the Bible, idolatry is compared to adultery. When Israel turned away from God and turned towards an idol, in one case, God used the illustration of a harlot, a wife who had become a harlot, to compare Israel turning from God and turning to adult, or idolatry. Idolatry is unfaithfulness in our relationship with God. We seek out someone or something. We look to someone different, to a different source, only to what God can do. We look for that for someone else or something else. In the New Testament, when the Gentiles the non-Jews began coming to Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. The apostles gave the, the Gentiles this admonition because they were coming out of false worship, idolatry, all sorts of things. So if you're going to come to Jesus, you're going to serve him, keep his teachings, but there are some practices you all do that, that have to stop. And that's what this was about. In fact, the church had its first council meeting about this. And this is what it says specifically, Acts 15, 19. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to, look at this, to abstain from things polluted by idols, for, from sexual morality, from strangled things, and from blood. Notice the Bible uses that term to abstain from things polluted by idols. And that's what idolatry does. It will pollute your soul. Idolatry pollutes our relationship with Christ. It's, it's supposed to be pure. And so when we pollute something, we're contaminating it. So it's compromising its purity. If we allow idols into our lives, we're polluting our relationship with Christ. We're embracing other lovers. Let's go back to the second commandment, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am what? A jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third or fourth generation of those who hate me. God says he is a jealous God. And in those verses, God, God is seeking or speaking to people who are making idols, bowing down to them. Those idols, instead of giving to God that devotion that's deserved for him. And it's a different use of the word jealous. When we think of jealous or jealousy, we think of it in kind of like fallen terms. But kind of give it this way. What, when God is jealous, he's jealous of what belongs to him. What belongs to him is worship, service, adoration, dedication, those belong to him. So if we give ourselves to others, material things, habits, experiences, desires, if we devote our time and energy, we take that away from God and we give it to something else, he's jealous of that. But it's not an unhealthy jealousy. If a husband sees another man flirting with his wife, 
he has the right to be jealous. For only the husband has the right to flirt with his wife. This type of jealousy is not sinful. It's entirely appropriate. Being jealous for something that God, that God declares that belongs to him is good and appropriate. Jealousy is a sin when it's a desire for something that does not belong to you. Worship, praise, honor, commitment, adoration, those all belong to God. Therefore, God is rightly jealous when we worship, praise, honor, dedicate, commit ourselves to idols rather than him. See, God wants us to be pure in our relationship with him. And throughout Scripture, the desired relationship God has is usually used in terms of a husband and wife. Give you an example. So as we're here on earth, we're waiting for Jesus to return. There's a process that God is, is doing in us and through us. The Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus. But there comes a day when Jesus is going to return. He's going to return for his church, and this is what he's seeking. This is what he desires. Look at this. And again, you'll find this throughout Scripture where God's people and God, the relationship is often linked between a husband and a wife. Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle of any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. So the purpose of the commandments is relationship, pure relationship. God chooses to use the example of a husband and wife committed to each other as our relationship to Christ. That's the example. And God wants our relationship with him to be pure. Our relationship with God is not open. It's an exclusive relationship. You can't have other gods. You can't have other lovers. You can't have other idols. It's an exclusive relationship. But unfortunately, we live in a nation who wants salvation, but we want our other lovers. To coin a term, and I don't mean to be vulgar about this, we want the blessings and all that of a, of a marriage, but we don't want the responsibility and the commitment. We want friends with benefits. And that doesn't happen with God. It's an exclusive relationship. And anything else that tries to connect us to the blessings of God, a relationship with God, the things of God, what only God can provide is an idol. Only under grace with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of his strength, can we destroy idolatry in our life. In fact, today, you may have idols in your life that you've allowed, things you, you may not even really thought about. Something that is trying to provide something for you that only God can provide. And that's what I want you to, to ask the Holy Spirit to identify. And we need to destroy those idols. Because what does it do? It contaminates our relationship with Christ. It, it, it tears that apart. God wants an exclusive relationship with us. But we have to remove idols that are in our lives. And today I'm challenging you to identify those idols in your life, those people, those places, those things that could draw us away from pure devotion to God and keep us away from what only belongs to God. So we need to repent, destroy those idols. God gives us grace for that, mercy for that. So what are some idols that sit on the throne of your heart and that pollute your relationship with Christ? And that's what I'm asking here this morning.